following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. This morning we are in uh, Hebrews chapter 4. I'm going to be looking at uh, just verses uh, 14 through 16, the last verses of of, uh, Hebrews chapter 4. So as soon as I get myself together here, I'll start reading. (laughs) Okay, Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find help in, a, in, in time of need. Uh, this uh, begins actually a new section, and it's unfortunate that in most, in, in, well, in all of our Bibles, because our versing, our translations may be different, but our chapters and verses are the same, um, that actually chapter 5, verse 1 should start here. And, and really, chapters 1 through 4 where we ended last week, is the first major section in the book of Hebrews, the Sermon of Hebrews. And uh, this begins a new section that goes all the way into chapter 10. And uh, his main point, or if his if he had a PowerPoint, his big PowerPoint heading would be our great high priest. And for the next five chapters, he's going to unpack and talk about what it means for Jesus to be our great high priest. Now, for most of us, this is going to be kind of a bewildering topic because unless we grew up Catholic, uh, we're going to be kind of out of the loop about what the what the big deal is about a priest, right? And I know for me, um, and and for most of kind of conservative evangelical, whatever you want to call, if you're not a Catholic, uh, whatever that kind of Christianity is, we got this idea that we have direct access to God, right? That just we just go right straight to God, and we're not in need of a mediator. We're not in need of a priest. And that's actually bad theology because we are desperately in need of a priest. Uh, but we, uh, we, we kind of have this, this idea, this notion that we've got this direct line to God. And we, we kind of live that way. And so for us, the whole notion of a priest is a little hard to grasp and put our heads around. But, but no Jew, no, no Hebrew reading this book or un, you know, hearing this sermon would have missed the significance of this because they knew how vitally important it was to have a priest to go before God on your behalf. And of course, we looked uh, last year in, the, in, in Exodus, and we saw as God instituted the, the worship of the tabernacle, uh, that God's presence dwelled in the, in the very midst of them, in the Holy of Holies, in this, this portable worship center. Uh, but we also saw that there were lots of barriers, right? That you didn't just walk in, you didn't just march into the temple and just walk right up into the Holy of Holies and start chatting with God. Right? didn't work that way. There were barriers all, the, all along the way. And no common person had access even into the tabernacle, much less into the, the Holy of Holies. That was com- completely off limits. Right? And only a priest could go there. 
So the way this worked is if you wanted to worship God, if you wanted to pray to God, if you wanted to uh, petition God for help, you had to go through a, a mediator. You had to have a priest. And there's some rather interesting and funny stories in the Old Testament about um, people wanting to have their own little priest. Uh, we won't go there. But the point is, they knew that if you wanted any kind of relationship with God, you had to have a priest who mediated your relationship. And his job was to go before God on your behalf as one who himself as a priest was qualified and had the credentials to stand before God. And he would bring your case before God. He would represent you before God. And then in turn, uh, he would make atonement for you. He could uh, produce for you forgiveness uh, by the sprinkling of blood. And, and through that, he could also bring from God to you God's blessing and help. So it kind of was a two-way street. Uh, he represented you before God and, and, and uh, got you, obtained for you forgiveness and mercy. But he also was a channel through which God would, would send uh, help and blessing. And, and so, that's, so they understood the important role of the priest. And so for these next few chapters, he's going to be talking about why Jesus... Is a, is a superior priest, kind of like in the earlier chapters you talked about Jesus being superior to the prophets and superior to Moses, even superior to the angels. Now he's going to talk about Jesus' high priestly ministry and how it's superior to the priestly uh, ministry of Aaron and his descendants. Um, so he begins with this uh, kind of introduction section in these three verses. Um, and he, he explains that Jesus is our great high priest. Um, he's the one who makes it possible for us to have access to God and from whom we can receive help and grace. Right, so we're all real clear on this. We don't go directly to God. We have a high priest, Jesus, who is our mediator, the one who stands between us and eternal, holy, infinite God. And Jesus, as our high priest, presents us. He represents us before the Father. And likewise, he is the channel through which God's blessings flow back to us. That's the picture that he gives us here. Uh, and what he wants to build in these next few chapters, and he begins the process here, is he wants us to know why uh, we should be confident or trust in Jesus as our high priest. Right? How can we know that, that Jesus will help us? And, and really what he's, what he's trying to do in these chapters is build up our faith. Um, we, 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 and his answer is that we should have absolute, and we can and must have absolute confidence in Jesus uh, to help us because of who he is as our high priest. Um, as we jump into this this morning, a fair question to ask ourselves is, how strong is your faith? How strong is your faith? What we're going to do just to test this right now, we're all going to go out to the pool, and I'm going to see who can walk across the pool, right? We're going to put your faith to the test. Well, maybe we won't do that. Um, how strong is your faith? Right? Uh, the entire Christian life is built on this one thing. Right? Your walk with Jesus, everything about what it means for you to be a believer in Christ depends on this one thing, how strong and how able your faith is. Um, last week we looked in, in, in uh, the first part of chapter 4 and uh, the, the author tells us this. He says, For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his own works as God did from his own works. 
Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So the question is, how do we... He says, we're supposed to strive to enter God's rest. We're supposed to strive to enter uh, this relationship with God that Jesus made possible. So how do we do that? Well, do we do it by being a good person? Is that what it means to strive to enter this rest? That we're to be a better person uh, by doing more good works? Is it a matter of having perfect church attendance? I always loved when I was a kid, you know, you had the charts, the little gold stars. It's like, when I get to heaven, those better be posted on the wall somewhere, right? Because I want credit for that, right? We, we, we kind of think that somehow. Somehow if my church attendance or my giving or my stellar service to God on the mission field is what qualifies me to enter into this rest. But of course, we know that our works have no place in getting us into the rest. Right? Now, we should have works. We should go to church. We should worship. We should serve. But those are never the means by which we enter God's rest. There's something that flows out of our relationship with God. And he tells us in chapter 4, verse 2, the, the way. He says, it is by faith. He says, for good news came to us, just as to them, that is Old Testament saints, by the message they heard, um, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. Right? The only way we enter God's rest, the only way we have relationship with Him, what it is all about is faith. Our trust in God, our belief, our conviction, our faith in Him. Um, and, and the writer of Hebrews is making a case through the book that our faith is not a one-time deal. Right? And oftentimes we wrongly teach that, you know, you, you believe in Jesus and you pray some prayer and you get saved. And end of story. All done. Game over. Right? The author of Hebrews is very clear that no, faith is not a one-time thing. It is something we must persevere in. Right? We must walk in faith from beginning to end. And if we don't, the, he, he warns there are serious consequences. There's all kinds of debate. And we'll get to unpack more of what those consequences are, right? Uh, but the, the, the emphasis here is that faith is a big deal. And we need to persevere in faith. We need to continue in faith or we will be at risk of, of not entering the rest, right? Um, so in this passage, he, he, uh, is, he's instructing us. Right? It, some of it sounds a little bit like a command, but actually it's all pure instruction. And he's, he's explaining to us how we can have greater confidence in Jesus and how we can grow and build up our faith. Uh, how we can trust him with all of life and its problems and worries and cares. All right, so there's, there's uh, basically three things that we want to talk about. The first one is that... Um, Jesus, as our great high priest, is absolutely worthy of our confidence. He's worthy. He is an object that um, is worth trusting in because of who he is. He says it in verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Uh, Jesus is the great high priest. He's the great high priest. Right? He's not just another high priest. He is the great high priest. The supreme, absolute pinnacle of what this office represented. 
Uh, and he's great and supreme because of who he is. Right? He says that he has passed through the heavens. It's a picture of Jesus after his death and resurrection. He ascended to the very throne, uh, the, the majesty of God, the right hand of, of God in heaven on high. Uh, he passed through whatever vast expanse of the universe, uh, which is uh, simply the, the grand lobby of, of God's throne room. And there he sits now in the highest position of authority and rule and power. Uh, he's the perfect and most suitable high priest because he is the Son of God. And, and that's really what the first four chapters have all been about. He's been explaining that Jesus is superior to the angels. He is superior even to Moses. Uh, and because of that, he's raised humanity uh, beyond, the, the, beyond the status of angels. And he has done what Moses and Joshua couldn't do by bringing us into his rest, right? Because he's the Son of God. He is the incarnate um, God-man, right? So that's what the first four chapters have been about. He is fully God, but he's fully man, and he qualifies as our great high priest. So he's worthy of trusting because of who he is, right? This is not a human, ordinary, common person. Right? He's uniquely the Son of God. Uh, and the result of this, he says, is because this is true, since we have such a high, great, great high priest, what should we do about it? Go home and take a nap, right? <laughs> is that what we should do? What should we do if Jesus really is our great high priest? Well, he says, if that's really the case, then we should hold fast our confession. Hold fast our confession. Uh, what does that mean? Well, he says, um, uh, this, this idea of confession, we've got to start there. What is our confession? Well, our confession is the basis or the expression of our faith. It is the declaration of what we believe and the substance of our convictions. What do we confess? Well, we confess, as it says in Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord... And you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Right? That's our confession. Um, so holding on to your confession is another way of saying that we need to have complete faith and confidence in what we have confessed. Believe, complete faith and confidence that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he died and that God rose him from the dead uh, as our way of salvation. <clears throat> We need to have a firm and right grip on these truths, right? We need to hold fast. We need to grab hold of these with a death grip, right? Um, when I was when I was a little kid, I was probably I don't remember how old, five or six years old, and uh, my dad owned a 1957 Chevy pickup truck, and I thought back then because I was born in 1961, so this is probably 65. The truck was 10 years old. I thought it was a really old truck, right? <laughs> Looking back now, it actually was not that old. Um, uh, we're in this truck, and it you know had a bench seat. And this is in the days before things like seat belts, and way before, like like generations before car seats, right? And so me and my brother were sitting in the bench. It was just a bench seat. Uh, my dad driving. I was in the middle for some reason, which didn't happen often because I was the older brother, and I always got the window. But some for some reason. My brother outdid me this day, and I was in the middle, and my brother was sitting in the passenger seat by the door. 
and we're driving down the road, cruising along, no seat belts, of course, no car seats. And uh, my brother, who was about three or four, maybe five at the oldest at this time, decides to start playing with the little lever on the door, the little chrome lever, right? So he just gives a firm jerk to that lever. And I don't know if we were going around a corner or what, or why this happened, but as he jerked the, the handle, the, it unlatched the door, and the door swung open. And he was firmly gripping hold of that handle, so it just jerked him out the door with it, right? And uh, all this happens like just in a flash, right? And my dad, in, in a crazy just reflex of instinct, reached across and grabbed my brother's arm as it was about to go out the truck, grabs hold of it, jerks him back in, and slams the door shut. And my brother just lands right back in his seat. And nobody said a word. I don't think anybody breathed, right? Just We just kept driving. Um, you know, he's talking about having a firm grip on something. I'm telling you, when my dad grabbed hold of my brother, I'm sure he had a firm grip, right? He was grabbing hold of him to save his life. And I'm sure my brother at the same time had a firm grip on that door handle because right? it was what he was holding on to. Right? We need to hold on to Jesus with a firm, unrelenting grip Right, that he is everything. He is our life. He is what we must grab hold of. That, that's what faith is. It is grabbing hold of him with everything we have in our being. But what does this really mean or look like in real life? And it's great to use these pictures and words. It's great to talk about grabbing hold of Jesus. But what does it really look like in everyday life? Um, the, the fact and the reality is that you cannot just will faith. In other words, you can't just grow faith or, or trust more by, by choosing or de- determining to do that. And maybe you've tried this. Um, um, you felt that, you know, if I just had more faith, I could see God do miracles. I could see God heal or answer prayer. And we, we sense that the failure is our lack of faith. So we, we will to have more faith. Uh, faith healers... Um, are great at exploiting this. Um, and there was just a recent faith healer in Bangkok recently who who um, prays for people to get healed. And when they don't get healed, what does he tell them? I'm a failure. You know, why, are you, why are you asking me to pray for you? I'm an idiot, right? Obviously, I can't do this. That would probably be the better answer. But no, what does he say? Instead, he tells people, you don't have enough faith. You need to will more faith. Just grunt down and eke out more faith, right? And then this will happen. Because I'm praying for you and it's not happening, so it's your fault, right? And then, like this uh, particular person, I won't won't that name, who was here in Bangkok last week, uh, he told people, here's how you can have more faith. Instead of putting a 100 baht bill in the offering, you need to put in 10,000 baht in the offering. And then you'll have more faith and God will take care of you, right? And this this particular person's got very wealthy uh, with that ploy. Can you will faith? Can you buy faith? No. Right? So how do you get it then? If we can't just decide we're going to be more determined and by our determination increase our faith, then how do you how do you do that? How do you grab hold? How do you hold fast with uh, our confession? Well, I think the answer is that we do that not by worrying about our faith, but by contemplating the one who is our confession. Contemplating the one who is our confession. 
thinking about or reflecting and meditating on the one who is the object of our faith. Because the reality is, it's not your faith that matters. It's the one that we're trusting in. Our faith has no power to accomplish anything. Jesus is the one who can help us. Um, And what we grab hold of is ultimately Him. Uh, So, uh, holding fast to our confessions means we must fix our gaze upon Him with steadfast devotion and determination. Right? We can't be determined to have more faith, but we can be determined to spend more time in His Word and more time meditating on who Jesus is and all that He has done for us. Right? That's something we can be determined and can follow through on. But this reflection has to be way more than just an intellectual exercise. Right? The goal is not merely to improve your understanding in your head or to get better theology. Uh, now, believe me, I believe in good theology because trusting in bad, the- bad theology is also not helpful. Right? We do need to understand and have good doctrine. But what I'm talking about here is not simply working out all the theological problems in the Bible, right? And having some kind of mental, intellectual understanding of, of, of all the right answers. Because uh, our problem is not, for most of us, that we have bad theology. The problem for most of us, for me, the problem is that I have great theology that I don't really believe, right? Sure, I know all the right answers, and in my head, I'll tell you it's true, but in my heart, I don't actually believe it. Right? That's the problem. So the problem is how do we get it from just facts and information into our head into our heart where we really believe it's true? How do we move our knowledge of Jesus from mere doctrine that we give some kind of mental approval to down to the deep level of conviction that we're really building our life on, that's really dictating how we live, that's causing us to hold fast to him? with every fiber of our being. Uh, The only way I know of to do this uh, is to take the truth that we know about Jesus and put it constantly before our eyes in a way that it becomes so real we can't help but know it's true. We have to reflect on it. We have to um, meditate on it. We have to uh, bring it from its superficial information level down to reality in our heart and soul. The the truth is it's too easy to settle for a shallow and superficial understanding of these truths. Uh, And we think that because we have the right answers, we're good. But it has to go so much deeper than that. These truths have to sink into the depths of our soul to the extent that they change the way we think and live. That's the root and foundation of faith. Uh, that that we are obsessed with these doctrines, that they are constantly on our heart and mind, and we are daily working out what they really mean in everyday life. I think that's what he means by holding fast our confession. Uh, from there, he gives us a second uh, important uh, truth as we as we evaluate, you know, how can we trust Jesus as our great high priest? And uh, the second reason we can trust him, the second reason we can have confidence in him is uh, because he personally shares in our weakness. Our weaknesses, actually. 
Um, verse 15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Uh, we can have great confidence in Jesus as a high priest because he has personally shared in the human kind of struggles. Right? It does not matter what you have struggled with in life, what you're struggling with right now. It doesn't matter what you have encountered that's caused doubt or discouragement or fear or worry. Jesus has encountered the exact same kind of things. Now that doesn't mean that Jesus wanted to throw his laptop off the 50-story you know, window because you know, he hates uh, whatever operating system he's using, right? Okay, that would be my temptation. Um, maybe not in those specific details, right? but at the core of it, at the root of it, he, he, he's felt our weakness. He's experienced our human weakness. Um, and so it says that, that he, he can look on our weakness, and he's not like one who doesn't sympathize, meaning he, he's one who has compassion when we struggle. Right? What are your weaknesses? What is it that you struggle with? Uh, Jesus has compassion on that because he understands. He's been there. He knows what it's like to struggle with these things. Uh, and he has confronted every temptation to sin and felt its great pull in his earthly body. Um, so, so what this means is this. When we come to Jesus, our high priest, when we come up to him and, uh, and we've, we failed... We have fallen. In our weakness, we have sinned. We've messed up, right? And we come to Jesus, our great high priest, and we confess to him our sin. Uh, Jesus does not look at us and think, oh, what a loser. That might be what we think, but that is not what Jesus thinks. Uh, He is not uh, saying, wow, this guy is so weak and so lame and pathetic. Why did I ever choose to save him? No. He looks at us with compassion. He says, I know how difficult this struggle is. I know what it's like to struggle with these things. I know the weakness, and I've felt the weakness uh, that's overwhelmed you and caused you to fail. Now, of course, his understanding must not be confused with his approval. <laughs> right? He understands. He has compassion. It doesn't mean he says, oh, it's okay. Right? Um, he wants us to change. Uh, but he doesn't say to us, why don't you just try harder? Right? You're such a loser. Why don't you get your life together and try harder? Right? That's not what he says. Instead, he says this. He says, I have already done everything necessary to overcome. I went to the cross to, to bring victory over sin and death. I have what you need. And when you come to my throne, when you come to me, you come to the right place. And I can help you. Right? I'm not telling you to try harder. I'm, trying, I'm, I'm urging you. God, Jesus is urging us to believe more. Because it is our faith in Him that will give us the power to overcome. Right? That's why he says in verse 10, Whoever has entered God's rest has rested from his works. Right? You, you've given up trying to do this on your own. And you've, really, you've come before Jesus and said, Jesus, I'm, a, I'm weak. I can't do this. I can't overcome. I need your help. And Jesus gives us help to overcome. 
Let us strive to enter that rest, he says, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. The disobedience of, of unbelief, of lack of faith. That's what this is all about, right? We, uh, we need Him, and we overcome because a compassionate high priest knows how to help us. Um, it is through what He has done and through what He will do for us that we will overcome. Uh, so Jesus, first of all, he, he, he understands our weakness, but more than that, it says that he, he specifically, that He was tempted in every way as we were, yet without sin. Uh, Jesus struggled with sin. And uh, if you want to get into uh, mind-numbing theology, uh, we could go down this whole path of, was Jesus able not to sin, or was he not able to sin, or was he able to not able to be able to understand if he sinned, or he didn't choose what he sinned or not? Got that? Right. We're not going to go there, right? But, but the author here is very clear about one thing. Whether or not Jesus could sin or couldn't sin is, is, is beyond my grasp. But, but one thing we know is that he struggled with sin, and he didn't. Right? And his struggle was real. Right? He faced very real temptations, and, and in ways that were at times overwhelming for him. Right? In the Garden of Gethsemane, he pleaded with the Father, please don't make me drink this cup. Right? Um, There was a part of Jesus that wrestled with the issue of submitting to the Father's will and going to the cross. He did not easily follow uh, and obey. He did obey, right? But there was a struggle there, and the struggle was real. And this is when testing comes, right? Uh, This is when things get hard. This is when faith is put to the test, when things are not going well. When things are going well, when in your ministry people are getting saved and your ministry is growing and you have more than enough support and you're seeing daily the fruit of your labor and you feel like you're being successful, right? faith is easy then, right? It's when the crowds keep dwindling away and finally even for Jesus, even his closest followers fled in the darkness and he was left absolutely alone. Right? One day he's preaching to thousands, perhaps tens of thousands of people. And the next day he's standing alone, deserted by everyone. And, and he's looking back over his life. And what does he have to show for his ministry? Nothing. Right? Even his most devoted followers abandoned him. And humanly speaking, he was a failure. That's when temptation comes. Uh, when Jesus saw that he had borne no fruit from his life, he had no disciples who were really willing to die with him and follow him to the end, who would take up their cross and follow him. Um, in fact, instead of seeing disciples, he saw the people turn on him and they completely rejected him. And they rejected his message. And they wanted to kill him and they did kill him. Right? That, that's the place where it's tempting to give up. Right? Uh, and, and on the cross and in his trial, he, he experienced tremendous suffering. As we've gone through the, uh, the Lent season, the, the, contemplating the cross, what Jesus suffered there, the nails and the thorn and the mocking and the ridicule, the betrayal and denial, hatred, 
rejection. Um, they spit on him and mocked him. Um, how could Jesus not at times think, uh, you know, the only way forward in obedience is to die the death of a criminal? How could this possibly really be God's plan? Right? How could, how could this be what the Father wants for him? And in fact, on the cross, God himself at some level abandoned Jesus. And Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? One thing to be forsaken by his flaky disciples. He didn't expect much from them to begin with, right? But to be abandoned by his eternal Father. And whatever that meant. Uh, for Jesus to be utterly alone and experience the ultimate of shame and failure. Of course, he did it in our place. He was our substitute. He did it as a sacrifice taking our place. Um, but if we, if we would ever charge that Jesus does not understand what we are going through, right? we have not spent adequate time contemplating what he endured on the cross and in his life leading up to the cross. There's no pain, there's no disappointment or discouragement you have ever faced that Jesus cannot relate to. He knows what it feels like because he has been there. Only he did not sin. He never gave up. And the sin in this case is not so much that he uh, you know, committed some sinful deed. because He didn't do that either. But beyond that, the greater sin is the sin of stopping faith. Right? Um, when we no longer believe, that is the ultimate sin. And it's really the beginning of every sin. When you sin, you're telling God, I don't believe your plan for me works. I don't believe your instruction for me is good. I think there's a better way. And we stop believing God and taking Him at His word. That's the beginning of sin. We, 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 we no longer have faith. Right? And then all the consequences that come out of that are just the fruit of our lack of faith, our disbelief. Jesus never stopped believing in the Father. Right? Whatever He was tested, whatever He was tempted, whatever He struggled with, He continued and persevered in faith, believing uh, that God, in the end, was going to take care of him. Believing in the love and goodness of God, even when he was going to the cross, knowing that what God had was good. His plan was the best. Um, last thing. So he, he makes these two points. First of all, one, first of all Jesus is our great high priest, we can have confidence in him because of who he is. Secondly, we can, we can have confidence in him because he understands our weakness. And he sympathizes. He, he's experienced what we go through. So he has compassion. But he, it doesn't end just with compassion. right? He doesn't just say, well, man, so sorry for you. Sorry I can't help and do more. No, that's not how it is with Jesus. His compassion and his his uh, sympathy always takes action. Right? He always does something when his heart is moved. It's one of the cool things about God. 
When God is moved, He always takes action. And that is true here. And so he says in verse 16, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In other words, he says, look, if this is true, if we really believe this, it would be crazy not to go to Jesus and find the help that he has for us. If this is the kind of high priest we have, I mean, the, the only reasonable thing to do is to, is to draw near to him and ask him for help. That's what a high priest does. right? That's the job of the high priest to mediate God's help to us, to bring us near to God so that we can petition him and find an answer to our prayer. Uh, he's going to spend, as I said, he's going to spend the next five chapters explaining all that Jesus' high priestly ministry achieves. And it, it's way better and way beyond what the earthly priest could do. Right? So we will discover that um, because Jesus is our high priest, we can actually enter into God's presence directly. We get to go right into the Holy of Holies, right into God's presence, face-to-face relationship with Him. We can come right up to the very throne of grace and ask God for help through Jesus. Um, and the first part of that is just simply to draw near to Him. Right? We don't cry out to God who's millions of light years away. And it can feel that way, right? It can feel like because we don't see God visibly and, and we, we picture heaven being somewhere on the, on the outer rims of our galaxy and our universe, right? And we can feel like, man, God's a long ways away. But it's not true. God is right here. Not as he, here in this room, because we're the temple of God as his church. But here's the amazing thing. You are the temple of God through the blood of Jesus. And he's actually made his throne in your heart. That's how close he is, right? And we can, in the spiritual being of our soul, we can come into God's presence and meet him there directly face-to-face at the throne of grace. Um, now, here's a great example of a truth we have in our head, but not in our heart. Right? Great example of a truth we believe intellectually, but we probably really barely scratch the surface in really believing it. At least, at least that's true for me. Uh, if I really believe that I could stand in God's presence before his throne of grace any time I wanted, and I could be like face-to-face with God, if I really believed that, I would spend a lot, a lot less time on my cell phone <laughs> playing video games or FaceTime or, or whatever, Facebook or whatever it is I do on my phone that wastes tons of time, right? Uh, if we really believed that was true, we would not be nearly as distracted by the things in this world that so divert our attention away and we think are so important. If we really believe that the God of the universe who created everything... Right, is immediately present to us. You know, it's, it's interesting. We, we claim as believers that we want to go to heaven. We, 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 we sometimes even dream about what it's going to be like. Friends of ours die, and we imagine them going to heaven. And at the same time, heaven has come to us, and we're oblivious to it. Right? Do we really want to go to heaven? Heaven's come to us. He is in our hearts. His throne is there. How much effort do we put into meeting him face to face? 
I think it's a good point, place where our, our theology and our faith have broken down, right? If we really believe this, um, you know, that we would really come to believe that we can draw near to God um, and be in His presence and we have full access to the throne of grace. The throne of grace simply means that when we draw near to Jesus, we do not come before a God who will judge and condemn us but one who extends to us mercy, grace, and forgiveness. Right? We come to him as a friend and as a child coming to a father. And this is not just like an earthly father. This is a father who loves perfectly and completely, who cherishes his children. Right? That's what it means to come to the throne of grace. Um, and we don't just come to the throne of grace, but he says we are to come boldly or confidently. Um, that's why faith is so important. Boldness is simply faith, right? We come boldly before the throne of God because we believe we belong there. We believe we have a right to be there. Uh, we, we do march into God's presence through Jesus with boldness, with faith that he is our great high priest and he's made this unhindered access possible. And we don't have to worry. Like, Here's the cool thing. It doesn't matter how much you have sinned or messed up. You can still go right to the throne of grace. And there he says, you will find two amazing things. You will find mercy and, and you will find grace to help in our time of need. Right? If we come to him and we have sinned, we have failed, uh, we find mercy there. Mercy is God's extending his kindness in forgiving our sin. Right? He doesn't scold us. He doesn't beat us over the head. He doesn't shame us. He gives us full and complete forgiveness. Right? That's what we find at the, at, at the throne of grace. We find his mercy. But also it says that we find his grace. And his grace speaks of his willingness to extend his favor toward us in love. Right? In other words, he wants to do, he wants to do like, great things for us. He wants to help us. He wants to bless us. Uh, we come as dearly loved children who come before this most loving, kind, gracious Father who wants to bless His children. When we struggle in our weakness, when we struggle in faith, um, when we don't know where to turn, we can find help at the throne of grace. It is His promise to us. Right? There's a couple conditions about the help that he gives. First thing, it is the right help. It's the best help. Um, his best help is may not always be what you think will be helpful. Okay, just to be fair on this one, right? You may go to God's throne and He gives you help you were not asking for. Right. Sometimes he sends the help of trials and tribulations and difficulties because he wants to build in you faith and godliness. Right. Um, and sadly, there's no refund policy. You can't send that one back. Right. Um, but it's the right help. Right. When Jesus went to the cross, he was getting the right thing from God. It didn't look like it. But he was getting God's very best. And God was accomplishing his purpose through Jesus for us was the right thing. I don't know what God's doing in your life, but there are times when he tests our faith where we don't get the things that we think are, 
are going to help us, and it's it's hard. Right? Second thing about this faith that's even even I think even worse is he says this faith comes at just the right time. Right, God's help comes at just the right time. God is not really real eager to give us help ahead of time. Right? He waits until the last possible minute. Or what I feel like is actually two weeks late. <laughs> right? But in his timing, it's always just exactly when you need it. But that's why it takes faith. Right? That's why it takes faith. That's why it takes boldness to come in before the throne of God and claim his promise and his gifts and his help and wait knowing that God's going to bring help at just the last minute, just when we need it. Right? So it's a test of faith. I don't know what you struggle with. Um, I don't know what causes you great discouragement and doubt. I know the things that bring me discouragement and doubt, and it seems like lately I've just been getting hit over the head with them. Right? Um, and it's easy in those times to start doubting a lot of things. I start doubting, maybe I'm not supposed to be here. Maybe I'm doing the wrong thing. Maybe I'm not following God's will. Uh, maybe, you know, I, I missed his instructions somewhere. Uh, I start, start second-guessing. And Satan will use those difficult times to bring about great discouragement in our heart. And it's easy to feel like God doesn't care about you. To feel like God's abandoned you and he's... He's not interested in you. Uh, then, more than ever, right, we need to come boldly before the throne of grace to our great high priest, to our great and loving Father who has promised if we come in faith, He will give every help we need exactly when we need it. He will not fail us. Even if we're just a loser and sinner, right? Even if we know we're where we are because we've done stupid and sinful things, we go to Him. And we are guaranteed, as we go in faith, we will find grace and help. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.